Welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Essie Merivara from PCC Employment Lawyers, and I'm joined today by the firm's director and principal, Brian Powell. G'day. How are you going? Today, we're going to be talking about one of the more critical aspects of employment law, being termination of employment. Sadly, termination of employment is always a part of business, and subsequently, it's a big part of our practice area. The firm uh, recently published an e-publication uh, on our website and on social media called Termination of Employment, a Lawful and Ethical Approach. There's a link to the publication uh, in the description of this podcast. And we, we've had a, um, quite a lot of feedback, mostly positive, and, and also some questions and commentary from our clients about it. So um, we thought it'd be a good, good idea to address some of those by way of a podcast. Um, for regular listeners, you might have also noticed that I've been uh, demoted. I'm no longer the host <laughs> of the podcast, so that's fine. We've got SEC. So anyway, I'll let you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, that's right. So the publication's in two parts. Uh, the first part addresses termination of employment for reasons relating to the capacity or the conduct of an employee. Um, and the second part addresses termination of employment for reasons relating to the redundancy of the employee's role. Yeah, and there's an important, our publications um, split that way and, and we're going to address address it as two different podcasts um, for that purpose. The reason we've split it is quite an important reason is that the law in Australia recognises um, two different types of employment, uh, employment termination, one relating to the employee themselves, uh, you know, the capacity conduct, you know, attributes of the employee, the other relating to, you know, the, the ongoing non-existence of an employee's role. So um, right. even though in a practical sense, quite often those issues can be intertwined and we get a lot of clients coming to us saying, uh, you know, seeking to make someone redundant and then it, it sort of transpires that sometimes the capacity of conduct is part of that decision and that can be legitimate in practical terms, but, but the way our law works is really to make those things mutually exclusive. Um, it's a slight legal fiction and quite an interesting one, but really the, the law says we need to approach it either as an issue of capacity and conduct or as an issue relating to the actual role itself. And look, we'll go in next month into the redundancy side a bit more. Um, the purpose of today is just to really address the first part. Yeah, that's right. And just yeah. uh, highlight some of the key points that we raised in the first part of the publication and answer those questions that we've gotten. Yeah, which we'll, yeah, at the end we'll, we'll address those client questions directly. That sounds good. So just to start us off, what was the purpose for the publication? Uh, okay, well, I've, I've always, in, in my time in employment law I've, and, and in business before that, um, I, I've always thought that, you know, it, it's a shame that, you know, discussions or meetings, terminations of employment generally, dismissals, redundancies, etc., um, are, are, are often really difficult times for employers and employees. Um, because it's difficult conversations, often they're done in a way that's not respectful or ethical, um, you know, and often because people's emotions are involved, it, it can be really hard for everybody involved. And obviously it's always hard for the employee, but I think it can often be really hard for the employer as well. So one of the things I've always tried to promote um, in the advice that I've given and the work that I've done for people is to try and try and make this, this can be any normal business conversation. I mean, it can be done in an honest, transparent, ethical, lawful way. Um, and quite often when you take the heat and emotion out of it and, and just focus on on being, you know, respectful and honest and transparent, I think that the whole process can, can be a lot less stressful for everybody involved. Um, I also believe quite strongly that it's important to take a, 
a sort of a consolidated approach to this issue from a legal perspective. There's, there's a large amount of information available online about the various risks of termination, whether that's you know, breach of contract, unfair dismissal, breach of the general protections provisions, breach of an anti-discrimination provision, etc., unlawful termination of the Fair Act. There's a, there's a multitude of different risks, but I find in the legal literature and in the HR literature, those risks are addressed very discreetly and, and really from the employer's um, perspective, the best way of doing it or the only way of doing it without creating legal risk is to actually have an approach that addresses all the risks at the same time. Mm. You can't be just thinking about unfair dismissal and then inadvertently, um, you know, the employer may find themselves falling foul of, uh, of some statutory or common law protection. So the consolidated approach that, that we address in the, in the pamphlet and we're going to address today, I think, is, is probably the most efficient way of reducing legal risk. Absolutely. Right. So if a business is considering terminating an employee... What should they do first? Okay, well, absolutely. The first thing you need to do is um, consider the reason. Um, what are the reasons that at some point in the employer's mind there's going to be, okay, this is not working. Mm-hmm. Um, I want this relationship to end or I want to address this relationship. And I think really the number one is to actually think what, what is, what's motivating that? What's motivating that, that operational commercial decision? Now, I put them into categories. First of all, misconduct. Now, misconduct is is when, you know, as the name would suggest, the employee's done something wrong. They've done something naughty. Generally, um, probably a little bit separate from, from the idea of, you know, the performance of their role, um, it, it's more about something within the within the course of employment that is, you know, you know that, that is misconduct. So the classic examples are theft or, um, you know, bullying another employee or... or mm. um, you know, that, that, that type of thing. Category two is, is more what I call performance. Now, that's when the, the employee hasn't done anything wrong, um, but they're just not performing their role well enough. Um, and it's an, an important distinction that I'll get to later. The third reason when the, the, that I describe as being capacity, now that's the employee's capacity to do the role that's not connected with their performance. So examples of this, is, for instance, uh, not having a valid visa to work in Australia affects an employee's capacity or, for instance, not having a driver's licence when uh, driving a vehicle is an inherent requirement of the role. Or most commonly and quite sadly often, this can be uh, really about medical capacity, whether that be through um, mental health or physical health or or something relating to the employee's capacity. And so... That each of those things um, have got a slightly different, um, once you identify those reasons, there might be a slightly different approach. The fourth category is the one we've alluded to already, and that's when it's actually nothing to do with the employee. Mm. It's just that you no longer wish that role to be done by anyone, um, and that falls into the redundancy, and that's going to be talked about next month. So we'll leave that to one side for now. Um, but then once you've identified those, the, the category you then need to consider, um, and I should say too, Essie, that I, that I haven't said, that the premise of this booklet and, and, the, and, the, um, and the podcast today is presuming that the employee concerned is covered by unfair dismissal legislation, which we can talk about a little bit at the end. Absolutely. But, um, but everything we're saying here is, um, 
is presuming that coverage of unfair dismissal and um, in some circumstances where there's no coverage, the, the process might be slightly slight, slightly simplified. But, but I think if we go with the most robust process available, that's going to include unfair dismissal. So mm. once you've identified those reasons, what I advise people then do is you need to then look at the reason and ask, is this a valid reason? Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's something we've talked about before. It's yeah. very familiar to uh, employment lawyers. But what does, uh, what does valid reason mean? Valid reason. So we, this is from the unfair dismissal regime. Uh, um, and it's actually from the um, International Covenant. Um, but, but we use this term valid reason in the Fair Work Act. Now, the Fair Work Commission, in their case law, will, will say that a valid reason is, is sound, defensible and well-founded is, is the classic language they use. But it's a really important concept, um, and in any type of unfair dismissal scenario, um, employers will actually have to actively prove that they had a valid reason. Um, now, that onus of proof and, and the whole concept of valid reason is, is there's two parts to that. Firstly, the employer will have to prove that whatever they say is true as a question of fact. Right. Um, and then secondly, they'll need to prove that those reasons justify termination of employment so it's a two-part test um valid reason is did did it actually occur so did the conduct actually occur set part two it does the conduct justify termination of employment yeah. right and, and that's I, the key and then would there be reasons that can't be grounds mm. for dismissal absolutely and that's another layer in itself a whole nother test um because it's really important to understand that even though you might have, a, you know, you might consider that you have a valid reason, um, certain reasons are protected by other parts of the law. So the obvious ones are um, discriminatory um, reasons, reasons that are protected under the discrimination legislation, or reasons that are protected under um, the general protections, section 351, sort of family responsibility, uh, race, national instruction, um, you know, uh, personal illness um, or disability, um, a, a lot of those, a lot of those things are protected. But also, really importantly, in the general protections as well, um, it's it's unlawful to terminate someone someone's employment. It's unlawful to take adverse action at all against an employee um, for reasons that include that employee having an, a workplace right mm. or proposing to exercise a workplace right or um, or exercise in the workplace, right? And, and then the classic one, well, exactly, the, the classic one is, you know, the ability to make a complaint or inquiry in relation to your employment. Um, so, and that's the one that causes a lot of grief. So really like workplace right, for instance, you know, you, you've got a workplace right under a modern award, for instance, for a minimum pay or for penalty rates. So the, the classic example, if you like, the egregious examples is an employee says to the employer, oh, I, I, why don't we get penalty rates on a Saturday? Right. And and the employer turns and, and terminates them for asking the question. So that's a, that, that's a breach of the general protection. <laughs> that's over and above the unfair dismissal um, protections. But it can be quite an interesting one because they, in the general protections, it only needs to be part of the reason um, to be an unlawful reason. So, for instance, it, it can get a little bit difficult when you've got a complaint or inquiry type scenario um, where you might have an employee that is genuinely underperforming genuinely causing all sorts of issues in the workplace 
They might be bullying other workers. They might be doing all sorts of things that, that make it a valid commercial decision to terminate their employment. But they might also be complaining, making complaints for inquiries quite regularly about their employment. So it's just worth bearing in mind, and, and, I, and I think most employers will be familiar with the with the sort of concept of the squeaky wheel, you yeah. know, and every workplace has got someone often that that can cause difficulties. And sometimes those difficulties can be actually the valid exercises of a workplace riot, but they're combined with other conduct that's not. Yeah. So it's quite important, I, I suppose, when you go back to that stage one, let's look at what the reasons are. I think it's really important to identify that there's no unlawful reasons also lurking. You know, um, and I think, or there's no allegation of those unlawful reasons. So, if you um, if you catch one of your employees doing something that you consider is misconduct or underperforming, and it just so happens that that employee has just put in an application for parental leave, it's important to be aware of the fact that. Um, an allegation might be then available that it's to do with the parental leave, not to do with the performance. And um, and so the, the employer needs to make sure, both to themselves and, and from, from an evidentiary perspective, that it is only the, it is only the reason, it is only the, the lawful reason that's, that's right. being acted upon. Um, so that's it. Which is why it's also so important to go through the process methodically, which we'll... Which we'll to. talk about, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's where the, 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 the following parts of the process um, become important, but it's also important to really, um, really be quite critical in the formulation of those reasons to ensure that those un- yeah. those unlawful elements aren't there already. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, just going back again to what you were saying about the the different categories, what's the difference between performance and conduct? Aren't they sometimes the same thing? I think they can be the same thing, mm-hmm. and, and and they can overlap quite significantly and, and it can be quite difficult. I mean, the classic one, you know, for instance, if if someone's doing a role in, um, you know, a retail role, for instance, um, and they just steal money, that's misconduct. Right. You know, it's not part of their job to steal money. So it's completely separate there. Straight up, you, you, you've got that. For instance, if someone in a, in a retail role is being grumpy to the customers, that's really going to be a performance issue. Mm. Um, and, and that one's quite clear. You know, uh, people that have set performance KPIs, not achieving the KPIs, not achieving high levels of productivity, all of those things, they're purely performance. On the flip side, you can have some some situations where there's a little bit of an overlap. And, and I think I've discussed with you before, this yeah. is like a kind of Venn diagram. Um, in the sense that you have, like, my favourite example is in a hospitality scenario where you've got, um, you know, like a, a waitress, for instance, that's kind of like a little bit rude to the customers and gets complaints. Um, that would be purely performance. Um, if the same waitress goes into the kitchen and um, is aggressive to one of the chefs, uses inappropriate swearing, um tells them to whatever, F off or whatever it might be, you know, the, the normal hospitality talk, that would be misconduct. Um, now, the final example is that we've got a situation where the waitress tells the actual customer to F off. Mm. 
I would say that's misconduct, but it's also in the performance of the role. Yeah. So there, there can be some overlap. Yeah. Now, what I think is really important, the reason the distinction is important is the Fair Work Act in the unfair dismissal context will um, provides that where the reason for the dismissal is related to the performance of the role, um, it's necessary for the employee to have been given a warning prior to termination. And, um, and the subsequent case law around that would show that, first of all, that warning has to be explicit in relation to um, what might happen Right. If improvement's not achieved, and it also has to be explicit in terms of what needs to be achieved. So it has to say what are the actual elements of the performance that need to be worked on, and the termination is likely to be an outcome if they're not worked on. And finally, a significant an opportunity needs to be given to actually improve those things. So you can't give someone a warning on Tuesday and then say when by Wednesday, oh sorry. Yeah. Hasn't worked out. Not enough time. So. Yeah, and and how much time exactly is a difficult one, um, because it would just simply depend upon depend upon the nature of the role. So, for instance, if you had something where, you know, like a great example is that hospitality environment. If if you're giving someone a warning for just being unfriendly to customers, not smiling, giving yes. bad service, etc. I I think that if it's really hasn't been improved within three to four weeks of the warning. And there's been no sign of improvement, then you could you could probably um, then have a valid reason for for termination if the warning satisfied those various conditions that I spoke about. Right. On the flip side, though, and this is a you know a, a good example. Let's say you had a salesperson that had KPIs in terms of how regularly they visited their customers. For instance, if they were like a, um, a commercial traveller, so they had to go around and they had to meet every one of their key accounts every three months, for instance, and you look back over the last year and they've only been achieving it every six months. So that might be a situation where you give them a warning and tell them to achieve that. Yes. And part of the part of that warning is going to be what the goals need to be, what needs to be achieved, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you then terminated them after a month. Might not be enough. Well, it's, it's not going to be enough because yeah, they haven't had a chance. Yeah. They haven't had a chance yet to improve. So it, it depends a lot about the substantive nature of the role, but it's certainly a very, very key consideration. And, and when people come for advice about termination of employment and it's purely performance-based and there's been no warnings, no performance management, generally the advice is from an unfair dismissal perspective that um, it, it's difficult under the unfair dismissal legislation to lawfully terminate someone straight away if there's been no discussion, which is one of the reasons why this sort of a culture of open and transparent discussion is really, really important at work. And it can't always be just fixed um, on the day you decide you don't want to employ someone anymore. And one of the things that we see with employers is that they, that when they get into those kinds of heated moments where someone's done something that makes them think that they have a valid reason to terminate and then they tell them that it's serious misconduct and they... Yeah, that's right. That's, absolutely. Just them on the spot. Absolutely. There are a lot of people that want to classify what is really poor performance as misconduct or serious misconduct because they've then got um, the they then perceive an opportunity to, to terminate quicker, um, and that's that's something that 
unfortunately, employers need to be really cognizant of. So what's the difference? The difference between serious misconduct and, and misconduct. misconduct. Yeah. Really, there is only one critical difference, um, and that is that serious misconduct um, justifies termination immediately without notice. So uh, serious misconduct has a definition in the Fair Work Regulations, but I won't go to that just yet because really a common law serious misconduct is in effect, it's, it's a repudiation of the employment contract. It's, it's demonstrating, it's conduct that's so, so bad that it demonstrates, demonstrates a sort of fundamental unwillingness to be, you know, inconsistent with the ongoing employment relationship. You know, so um, theft, serious violence, those types of things mm. um, have, have always been the, um, the sort of the cornerstone serious misconduct. But, but really at common law, that's in the definitions in the Fair Work Regulations is something very similar, willful or um, intentional willful behaviour, which is inconsistent with the continuation of the contract. But they have some, um, they include some specific things, um, intoxication at work, yeah. which... I don't want to go too straight away because that can be a bit contentious. But say, look, serious intoxication at work, um, you know, theft, violence, anything that, that causes serious and imminent risk to the health um, or safety of another person, whether Absolutely. that's a colleague or a member of the public, um, and anything that, you know, serious or imminent risk to the reputation or viability of the business, that type of conduct. But really the critical thing from a legal perspective is that Whatever happens from an unfair dismissal perspective, you need to show a valid reason for termination. If you terminate without notice, there's then that additional threshold that it needs to be serious misconduct. So it adds an, another layer onto, onto things as well. So That's yeah. right. And so, you know, really, but, but what I should have said before that, obviously, which is a really critical thing to know, is that other than serious misconduct, employees are entitled to termination on notice, so they are either given a period of time under the Fair Work Act or under their contract, in which before their um, t the termination comes into effect, or they need to be paid the equivalent in lieu of notice, um, and that you know that will really depend on whether the fair, national employment standards of the Fair Work Act, depending on years of service, or if there's a contractual notice provision, whichever is the higher in effect. Okay, so. If we're at that stage now where we've identified the reason and we're confident that we can establish that the reason is valid, uh, what's what's next? What, what are the procedural requirements to dismissal? Okay, again, and look, the, the, these again mainly come from the unfair dismissal um, regime. Um, and if the employee in question is not covered by the unfair dismissal regime, these may not be non, may not be relevant. But my view is that this procedure when it comes to termination of employment is just... It's just best practice. Um, it you know there's a few corners that can be probably cut if it's not an unfair dismissal covered employee, which we'll go into perhaps a bit later. But I think if you you know on that presumption they're covered by unfair dismissal, that these are the things that are really the fundamentals. And the first one, and and this is actually this is a fundamental in terms of redundancy. Um, workplace change, just about anything in the employment context is that we've recognised in our system that employees shouldn't be blindsided. They should never have the situation where, where a decision is sort of put to them that is final and they, they, and they didn't see it coming or they mm. couldn't see it coming. And I guess that's a really important 
principle to be guided by. Um, and again, there's parts of the law that dictate that specifically, but I think it's just a really best practice and it's operationally, commercially, workplace culture, but most importantly, legally, really good to have very effective communications around any type of workplace decision. But in this termination um, context, fundamentally, the reasons need to be put to the employee and the employee has to have an effective opportunity to respond prior to any final decision being made or communicated. So this is where, we, you know, in, mis in a misconduct situation, you might be talking about like a show cause letter and a meeting, a disciplinary meeting where the allegations are put to the employee. Um, the employee then has the opportunity to respond either in writing or in the meeting. And then um, uh, and, and that opportunity needs to be a genuine one. And then the decision needs to be deferred until after they've had the opportunity to respond. Um, that's the first one. Secondly, <clears throat> there's a few formalities in the sense that the, any, ter any subsequent termination would need to be in writing. Yeah. Um, and I think that those allegations, those reasons that, that are put to the employee, whether it's the show cause process or the disciplinary process, um, ideally should also be in writing, um, both so that the employee can have a chance to go away and look at it and think about it, right. but also from an evidentiary point of view so that you can actually demonstrate that that process is... You can refer to something that you've actually given been, them. And that, that's right. Um, again, how long the person should be given um, is another question that's very much um, dependent on the context. Um, rule of thumb that I've read you know, in various places is that at least 24 hours should be given, right. um, you know, for, for the employees to have an effective chance to respond to the allegations. But wouldn't it depend on the, the response that they give? Well, that's what I mean. No, sorry. They should be given at least a 24-hour period before they have to respond. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. I didn't <laughs> make that very clear. So, so really, and, that, and that's in, the simple, in a simple misconduct sort of situation. If, if a, a range of complex allegations are being put, mm. then really it may not even be fair to only give 24 hours. Um, and, it, and it depends a lot, perhaps, if the allegations are quite... Um, old in time if you're talking about something that has just come to light that was five or six months previous mm, um i'd have the, to yeah. go back look through the calendar figure that, out what that's happened right at the time. that's right and 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 really I, I think the the critical thing in that if you think about it substantively rather than through a sort of a formal process i think it needs to be looked at more as a case of okay is the opportunity to respond genuine have they actually had the chance to really respond properly um, and, and that's where the time comes. And, and also an, another really important factor then is that actually the reasons themselves or the, or the um, you know, the allegations or the, whatever it is that the employer thinks is the reason why the employment might come to an end um, needs to be given in a, in a level of particularity. Like the, the employees really need to know... Exactly what it is. Exactly what it is, Yeah. Um, so some detail, it needs to be, you know, dates, times, actual words to the effect of this, etc. You know, it's not sufficient to say you've been bullying your colleagues, you've been an unpleasant... Yeah, who, colleague. how, when. <laughs> who, yeah. how, when, ex exactly right. But also, it's really important because the reasons, the reasons is not just the conduct 
um, the, the reasons is why the conduct, as we said, when we talked about the valid reason, um, to prove the valid reason, you need to prove that the stuff actually happened. And secondly, that it justified termination of employment. So when you're putting that reason to the employee, it's got to have both parts. Mm. It's got to have what did they actually do? And secondly, why does the employer think that that justifies termination? Right. So it needs to have both. And the employee really deserves an opportunity to answer both of those things before you should then make that final consideration. So that's what I thought we were getting at before. So when, so if we've gone to the point where the employees looked everything over and they've gotten back to you and they have, you know, um, either they deny some of the facts or they have some points to raise about why it's, it wouldn't be fair or justified to, to dismiss them, how long do you have to give the employee before you then move on with the next step if that's what you decide to do? Yeah, and again, that very much depends on the circumstances. I mean, if the employee comes back to a meeting and um, and gives their responses mm. and the employer says, okay, thanks very much, you're terminated, then they clearly haven't been considered by the employer. Have they? Right. You know, and, and it would depend a little bit how complex are the allegations, how complex are the responses. Mm. The employee turns up to a meeting and says, I've got nothing to say, I deny, I deny, I deny, then that consideration period might be quite short. Of course. You know, yeah. um, often employers will sort of, in those circumstances, might just make a decision to say, okay, we're going to break the meeting and you know, have a discussion, you know, amongst the decision makers for half an hour and that might be sufficient. At other times it might be necessary to send the employee home again if they've you know, been on a suspension right. and call them back for another meeting, um, you know, especially if some of the things that they've mentioned could potentially require some other consideration or thought talk or to questions somebody else or, talk, or exactly yeah. talk to somebody else and see see what they have to say and um, and so from that point of view it, it can be can be quite complex and there's another thing in that as well and we haven't really spoken to this yet but even when you're at the point where you're making a decision about somebody's future about the termination of employment. A final consideration, in the, in the, certainly in the unfair dismissal um, jurisdiction, is whether or not the dismissal is harsh. So, for instance, it might be that you have a valid reason. It might be that you followed all of the procedures, etc. But just in those circumstances, because of the individual personal characteristics of the employee, a decision to terminate is harsh. And, and, and that might be the case where, for instance, someone's been, you know, the, when I said a, a really bad um, work health and safety Bridge, for instance. Mm. Let's say somebody's been a loyal 28-year employee. They've never had a work health and safety breach before. They've had an exemplary record. Um, they're, you know, in their late 50s and are going to find it very difficult to get similar work in another organisation right. um, because they're close, or not late 50s, early 60s, whenever it is, close to retirement, something like that. Um, they're going to find it difficult to retrain. It's going to have monumental consequences. They've got, um, they're supporting a family, you know, that type of, those types of considerations um, may make a decision harsher for that employee than it might be for the person that's been one year in the role or yeah, something like that. Depend, yeah. So those personal and, and it's, you know, whereas the valid reason question about whether whether conduct justifies termination is is a sort of objective the harshness is actually subjective about the individual 
in that circumstance. And there often are situations where you might think, and this is where the responses are really important because sometimes the responses might might not be, okay, I didn't do it or I don't think that's justified. They might be... Um, I'm, they might be mitigating circumstances. Right. They might be, I've been having a really hard time, you know, my with my marriage um, and I've been suffering from a bit of anxiety and I've really struggled, but I'm terribly, terribly sorry. I really, really want my job. I've worked here for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. They may be mitigating circumstances that may impact that decision of harshness. Right. You know, certainly if there's some underlying um, problem that they're experiencing at home, those are all things that should be considered before a final decision is made. So they're, they're all of the reasons that I, I think that's that's kind of um, relevant to how long you would then think about those circumstances before making a final decision. But certainly that's a critical part in this sort of timeline. Definitely defer the decision until you um, hear the responses, but consider after the responses also that harshness Mm. element as well yeah, right yeah. um and then back to the if, if you're having a meeting with an employee uh i think a lot of us have heard about uh the requirement to to invite them to bring a support person yeah yeah absolutely well it's interesting it's not so much a, well it's not a legal requirement mm. and it's interesting what, what it is is that one of the considerations for unfair dismissal is whether or not there's been an unreasonable refusal from the employer to allow a person to have a support person. It's not explicitly inviting, but <laughs> to deny. That's right. So, yeah, it's it's more an unreasonable denial. Mm. Um, now, that can arise if the timeline's unreasonable. For yep. instance, if you call someone into a meeting and the meeting's happening now, then obviously they haven't had an opportunity for a support person, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, the meeting also um, has to relate to the possible dismissal of the employee as well. So it's, it's actually a very low threshold, but again, absolutely on every level, best practice to just do it all the time. Yeah. You know, allow employees to have, have support people. And who can um, that person be, the support person? I, I think it can be anyone. Um, it's sometimes in highly tense situations, the employee will want to bring a lawyer. Mm. And as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. Um, they can only function as a support person. And what does that mean? What are they allowed so, to do? So all support people really are there for to ensure that the employee has got adequate support and is able to participate in the meeting properly. So, for instance, as a support person, if you believe that the person is becoming um, too upset or too emotional or is not able to... Um, properly understand the circumstances that they're in, etc. Then you can intervene and ask for a break. You might ask for water for them. You know, um, if in some limited circumstances, if if you just don't believe the person is understanding a question, a support person might say, "Oh, you know, excuse me, I don't think that person's understood that question. Can you paraphrase that, or could you say it again?" Right. That would be about the extent of the involvement that a support person can give. But they shouldn't be there to, to advocate? To Not to advocate. They right. can't speak on their behalf. They can't answer on their behalf. And employers are entitled to ask a support person to, to leave if they, if they try and do that. Um, I've always, in these meetings, had a very um, liberal attitude towards support people. Um, you know, I, I, I think support person, should, you know, 
needs to be able to give support and, and you know if they feel like asking questions often you can let them ask questions there's sure. no reason there's no reason not to it's more about shielding or hiding the person themselves from from trying to answer now often if there is a lawyer that is um i generally consider that that to be fine as long as they don't act like a lawyer as long as they act like yeah, a support sure, person sure. <laughs> you know and in truth from a practical perspective i find that um, if someone has a support, a lawyer as a support person, then chances are that person's going to get involved perhaps later down the track. Mm. And, you know, maybe I'm too pro-lawyers because I'm a lawyer, <laughs> I'm biased, but I think, well, one, I'll let them in early and, and, and that might might lead to sort of sensible discussions down the track unless they're an unhelpful lawyer, <laughs> in which case they, they get asked. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. In that case, they get asked, they get asked to leave or, or, or to be quiet. Yeah. Um, but really, the, the, another thing we get quite often is colleagues because it's not—it's completely not controversial to say that often people's good friends, are the people they work with, mm. um, you know, the classic support person is partners, brothers, sisters, friends, etc. But if someone wants a, new, a support person from inside the organisation, um, and that's the only person they can have, they can often be a little bit difficult. Again, I tend to advocate for my employers to have a, a liberal attitude towards doing that sure. because I think generally that can be the, the right support person. Sometimes, given the confidentiality of whatever's being discussed, it's not appropriate and that's a call for the employer to make. It's also a middle ground, a very healthy middle ground, is to actually say, okay, you can have that person as a support person, but you actually advise that person separately as you're an employee of this organisation this is confidential and you can talk about it with the employee to the extent that that's necessary to function as a support person. Right. But if you talk about it with anybody else, you're next. <laughs> <laughs> no. Maybe not in those words. But <laughs> not in those words. You, you would set out very carefully that there may be disciplinary consequences if they don't. Uh, you know, have some degree of confidentiality. You might ask them to sign something. You might, generally speaking, most sensible people and most people that are in that role of support person in, in workplaces for one of their colleagues would understand that that's what that's yeah. what's required. So that's really just a case of appetite for, um, you know, for, for the employer in that sense. But look, again, <laughs> seek some advice about what the actual requirement is. It can be a little bit contentious about what actually is a discussion around dismissal. Um, you know, technically speaking, the show cause um, meeting, um, it, it may not be a requirement um, and certainly really the requirement is only the unreasonable refusal. But um, I think best practice is to just invite it for, yeah. for any type of serious disciplinary meeting. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, my, that's generally my approach and my advice. I think that's pretty much the process, to be honest. It um, is. But what about if, um, from an employee's perspective, they feel that they've been wronged in the process, what what are their options generally? Is that unfair dismissal? Um, can we talk about maybe who has access to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think that was one of our key questions too because we went a, a, a long way to um, in terms of our discussion around, you know, the presumption of unfair dismissal coverage. Um Unfair dismissal is only available to a certain section of the workforce, which is the majority of the workforce, but 
but there's jurisdictional parameters. Now, you have to be six months in the role um, if you're working for a, a standard employer like a, of, of more than 15 employees. So six months before you qualify for unfair dismissal. Now, for a small business employer, that's 15 or less employees, that extends to a year. As well as that, you need to either be covered by a modern award or an enterprise agreement or be below the high income threshold, which, which is around 153,000 or so. I think it's 153,600, but I'm almost always <laughs> wrong. I have to look it up every time because it, well, it like changes. It, it changes every year, but it feels like it changes every three months. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's that. And you also fundamentally, you have to have actually have been dismissed as well. That's a jurisdictional parameter. Mm. Um, and now dismissal is, you know, there's a couple of things you need to, uh, the termination either needs to be at the initiative of the employer, so it needs to be the, the employer's initiative actually terminating, or um, you need to be, you know, uh, the employer, you resign because of a course of conduct that really effectively gave you no choice but to resign, which is a kind of the common law idea of constructive dismissal. Now, that's a very, very high bar. Um, you know, it really needs to be a, an active compulsion making someone making someone resign. So if you've been dismissed, you've been employed for more than six months um, and you're under that high income threshold, you're covered by a modern award. It's also relevant to note that the application will need to be brought within 21 days of dismissal taking effect. Which is quite soon. Which is quite yeah. soon, yeah. But that's, you know, really in in, um, in those terms, that's the kind of the, the coverage. Now, for people that are not covered by that, are still going to be covered by the general protections provisions of the Fair Work Act, which prohibit adverse action for those grounds that I spoke about um, in the sense of either the workplace right, the exercise of the workplace right, or because of protected attributes such as race, national extraction, religion, um, family, carers, responsibilities, right. gender, sexuality, political opinion, social origin, etc., etc., etc. Um, as well as that, really critically adverse action against um, people for their involvement in industrial organisations or mm. um, industrial action, um, and they're protected against that. And adverse action um, includes dismissal, but it doesn't need to be dismissal. That can yeah. be um, demotion. Reduction of hours. Reduction of hours. Yes, that's any type of either injury to employment, they call it, or any, you know, um, having the employment altered to their prejudice. So even taking them off big projects that they'd usually be involved with. Or <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and look, it, it can be, a, absolutely, it can mm. be very, very broad, that those provisions. And um, everybody in the national system is covered by general protections, which is one of the key things when we took a step back, taking a step back to the beginning when I said that we need to, you know, identify the reason and then question does the reason contain or could it be alleged to contain some other component that may offend those those principles but also those general protections section 351 of the general protections also replicates what we already have in terms of age discrimination race discrimination mm. sex discrimination all of those and, and they're very similar they, they, they correlate yeah. with each other critically it's important to know that that any employee can only bring one of those applications if that's actually oh, relating yes. to the to the dismissal of their employment as well. So that's but that's a bit of coverage. But but as I say, like I think really 
I, I think that, you know, treat every employee like they're covered by unfair dismissal is not a bad way to stay out of court. Sure, yeah. Um, but it can be a little onerous. So that's at the point where I sort of say, okay, if, you'd like, if you don't think there's um, unfair dismissal coverage or either way and you want to sort of, you know, cut a few corners or you want to expedite the process, then that's really where I think you need to get legal advice. Absolutely. Um, yep. That's, you know, and, and certainly a big part of what we do, um, you know, is respond to those types of requests, as, as we know. But, yeah. So what are some of the other things that people have, I know you've been yeah, collating I think the that's, questions. Yeah, that's all that we've kind of covered, the, the big ones. Um, yeah. To answer some of the inquiries that we've got from social media, from clients that maybe weren't addressed in the booklet. Yeah. Um, the first one, can I dismiss an employee because they do not fit in with other employees in the company or if they have a bad attitude? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, you know, and on the whole, I would say chances are yes, but not for those reasons that the way they've been described. (laughs) (laughs) Culturally fit. Yeah. A common one is a cultural fit. And for years, cultural fit, um, has been used as that kind of go-to phrase when you just kind of don't like someone very much, but you can't really put your finger on what it is, you know. Mm. And I think there's a huge danger. And a few years ago, I I, I blogged about this. I mean, we'll maybe try and share the link to that as well um, on the whole issue of the, the the correlation between the the protected attributes I spoke about in Section three fifty one political opinion, social origin, race, family mm. responsibility, national extraction, sexuality, gender, and the whole idea of culture. I mean, really, Section 351 is describing the elements of someone's culture. Precisely. You know, I think it's very hard, you know, um, and look, you know, someone just can have a bad personality. And sure. That's, yeah. that's not protected by Section 351. Um, so, so it's not to say that, you know, someone just being, having a bad attitude, because bad attitudes exist, mm. not being able to fit in definitely exists as a thing. Um, I think really the, the best approach is to, to avoid the dangers of that coming across as discriminatory though, is to identify objectively what it is about the conduct, capacity, performance mm-hmm. that is objectionable. And if you can actually particularize those things, and I think anybody can really, when you think about it, um, hard enough, if you, if, you, if you really don't want someone in the workplace, though, badly enough you can you can identify those objective criteria and say okay these are the things now it could be that the person needs to be performance managed about their bad attitude or their fitting in because it doesn't sound in there's not misconduct it's not something you can sit them down and and then start a process straight away but certainly i think identifying that objective criteria and the funny thing is i've lost count of how many times i've been involved in a situation where you advise people okay identify that objective criteria because you need to identify that and work on that before a termination can ever be undertaken. Bizarrely, you identify those things and they actually change. Oh, yeah. And they get better, you know, and and so often that can be really a better better outcome for everybody. Um, And that's that's one of the reasons that I think these processes exist in many ways is, as, as I said at the very outset, having that kind of transparent, honest, constructive conversations can actually sometimes, you know, completely alleviate the need to determine employment. But if they don't, then you've set yourself on the path to do it fairly and yeah. respectfully. Yeah. Oh, that's good. 
What about in what circumstances can an employee be suspended? Yeah. Now, this is a good one, and, and we always advise um, – I, I put it this way. I don't want to get overly technical. We Our standard contracts of employment contain the right to suspend, mm. and I think it's really important because in some instances um, there's an implied duty of the employer to provide work. Yeah. So um, you can be breaching a contract if you just stand someone down. Yeah. You know, unless you have that express provision. And what that express provision is doing is, is actually ceasing the operation of that implied term. Having said that, if you don't have it, there's also a, um, a you know, a, a term of, of a contract that the employee must follow a lawful and reasonable direction. Mm. Another implied term. So if the conduct objectively is, is bad enough, then it becomes a lawful and reasonable direction to ask someone to go home. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. so I wouldn't worry too much about it if you need to suspend someone. Like, for instance, if there's an allegation that someone's been really seriously bullying somebody else and it's unsafe for them to continue until um, so they can be work resolved. Safety perspective Absolutely. for the other employees. And- Absolutely. And even for the own employee, like if something yeah. that bad's happening, that could have consequences oh, for yeah. everybody. Um, so from that point of view, I think if it's that bad, then you can you can suspend because you've got that. As I say, that would be a lawful and reasonable direction, the only direction you could you could take. Yeah. In some circumstances, if the contractual provision is not there, it, it can be a breach of contract to suspend. So we advise mm. we advise having it. But in in the circumstances that you were kind of the example that you used, bullying, um, would you say that it's it's better to suspend them and go through that investigation uh, than? Give them a warning, or a, or go uh, through the disciplinary. Uh, absolutely, look, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, any time that you have a, a genuine and reasonable belief that someone in the workplace is unsafe, then I think that's that's the only way, the only yeah. way to go. But um, as long as long as the suspension is uh, obviously needs to be on full pay, mm-hmm. and there can be no prejudice to the employee that's being suspended um, until the disciplinary process or the investigation or or whatever it is is only one. And we haven't really gone into when it's necessary to do an independent investigation, and that's probably too much for today. Yes, probably. (laughs) (laughs) One of our listeners has been asking about um, a podcast on investigations um, since we started, and I keep forgetting to do it each time. We'll do one. We'll we'll do do one. one. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. One of the other questions we got was, uh, what are the remedies under unfair dismissal legislation? So for the employees who that does apply to. Yeah. Okay. So uh, unfair dismissal, um, the primary remedy is reinstatement. Um, so uh, reinstatement can be awarded um, if the commission considers it appropriate um, and actually payment in between Termination and the date of reinstatement of lost wages can be actually awarded. Now, that happens in very, very few cases. Mm. Um, Really, even though it's the primary remedy, they're actually the outliers. Yeah. Um, If if the commission considers that reinstatement is inappropriate, they can order compensation and they can order up to 26 weeks pay. But I think, again, the 26 weeks orders are the outliers that they are... um, really only awarded in cases where there's been a very long service. Yeah. And um, 
and the circumstances of the unfairness of the dismissal were, were quite egregious. And, that, and that's where you see the very high orders. I, I think somebody told me, a conciliator told me that the the median is like eight to ten weeks or yeah. something like that. Um, one of the questions that I actually quite liked was, uh, can I ask an employee to resign? What about offering an employee the opportunity to resign rather than being dismissed? And uh, what are the benefits and or risks of doing that? Yeah. Okay, look, uh, I think that comes that, that question comes from exactly the right place. Yeah. Like, a, a, you know, a, a, a sort of a considerate, commercially-minded employer might think, hey, why don't you just resign? It can be really dangerous to ask that question sure. um, because, in effect, one of the – what I was talking about with Section 386 – um, it, that can be a course of conduct that gives employees no choice but to resign. So actually suggesting that an employee resigns can be a dangerous course of action. Um, having said that, and again, with the danger of getting a little bit too technical, um, it's appropriate, often appropriate to have an, an actual without prejudice conversation with an employee. Mm. Um, now, without prejudice is, um, in effect, it's an off-the-record conversation that you know can't be used later yeah in a court if that if the conversation is is used to genuinely in a genuine attempt to resolve a potential dispute between parties now now the critical thing is that um you know before having without prejudice conversation the the person has to consent to being involved in that without prejudice conversation mm. so there's it's really quite tricky um and look it's something that you know certainly um, can happen. I would be getting some legal advice about having that conversation before yeah. you have it and getting some assistance. Um, often there can be a way when um, when really the, the employer thinks that there's no way back in, in particular circumstances. There may be moments in the process that I've spoken about where offers could be made to employees. Um, generally speaking, they'd have to have the opportunity to resign. And in my experience, they'd have to be given something on an ex gratia basis that they wouldn't get if they were terminated before that becomes tempting to, to anybody. So there, there are there's some benefits, there's some risks. It's very tricky. Um, I wouldn't be advising employers to, to go out on a limb and start doing things like that yeah. without legal help because it could create, create real risk. Yeah. Um, but certainly, actually, just you know, just in the process itself, just making a suggestion that someone should resign can have pretty dire consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And and it kind of evinces as well. Uh, I suppose the main risk, and it may not even be a constructive dismissal risk, but it, it evinces an intention from the employer that they've already made their mind up. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So if you then later terminate the employment and say. Oh yes, I listened to their responses, and oh yes, I considered that, and I considered harshness, and so I hang on a minute, you know. Well, in the first meeting, you suggested resignation. You'd obviously made your mind up. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it, it does compromise the employee's position. So knowing when to when to bring that up and how is very important. Very important, and I think something that, to my mind, needs legal advice on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah if that's that. something that you're thinking. Yeah, um, and then just on the strain of uh, resignation, what if what if an employee says that they resign, there's a heated discussion, they walk out and say, I'm not coming back. Yeah. Um, what's the risk if you just accept that resignation? Yeah, I think it needs to be, um, it, it needs, well, look, it's a couple of things. How long do you wait 
before they come back, before they can say, yeah, they're definitely <laughs> yeah. gone. Is it a day? Is it two days? Is it a week? Um, the whole issue with common law of this concept of abandonment yeah. um, is quite tricky. Um, I would be saying that it needs to be confirmed in writing. Mm. Now, if the employee storms off, etc., cetera, um, then it's totally acceptable to send them an email saying, noting their verbal resignation. Yeah accepting their resignation in writing, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, and, and that can really put a full stop under the, at the end of the relationship, if you like. Mm. The problem being if they fire straight back and say, oh, no, I haven't resigned, yeah. then you're back to square one. Um, I think it's difficult to rely on just a verbal resignation by itself. Yeah. Um, so I think that really you've got to, you've got to go through that, and th- that process. And that's a really tricky one, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and often, you know, Probably the worst thing you can do is just wait and see if they come back. Yeah. From a legal perspective, but most of the time they don't. As well. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I can so, see that. So you know, it's one of those situations where your your advice is okay. You've got to solve this. You've got because it's bad for the employer if you don't resolve it. I guess that so, could that could also raise the constructive dismissal issue, depending on what the heated conversation was, what happened before. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. So you know, and certainly there's there's likely to be two sides of the story. Yeah. You know, and um, and I think that certainly the the worst thing you can do is have a heated discussion where you think somebody's resigned, and then exactly twenty days later you get the the unfair dismissal yeah. application, yeah. and then you know, and, and that's why it's best from the employer perspective to a- act on that and formalise it. Mm. But you know, trying to confirm someone's resignation in writing, if that's then retracted, you 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 know you know better off than when you started, and I think then it's better to address the heated discussion. As yeah. an issue in itself, and, and resolve it from there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. Right, we've covered so much. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've done it. I think that's that's probably enough. And next month we'll we'll talk about um, uh, redundancy. Um, in the meantime, as usual, just sort of feel free to sh- feel free to share or, or subscribe or um, reach out to us with any any further questions. We can address those next time on on social media on the web page S you'll be here again next month as the new host thing as I've been demoted (laughs) (laughs) not demoted (laughs) and we'll see you next time thanks thanks